welcome to the Hunt Back Country podcast. This is episode number 333, and today we're talking about suppressors or silencers for your rifle. And specifically, we're talking about the process to get one and how that's changed even here recently. So listeners of the podcast may be aware that I've been hunting with a suppressor for a couple of years now. And we've talked about that on the podcast and my experiences with it. I've also actually shared a article uh, over at the Exo Mountain Gear blog, which you can get to by going to exomountaingear.com forward slash suppressors or visiting the link in the show description. And in that article, I talked about hunting with a suppressor, what I know now, and what I wish I knew before I bought one. One of the most common questions I get about suppressors is about how to get one. So they're regulated and you have to jump through hoops and do fingerprints and approvals and pay. And there's a lot of details about that here recently. There's been some changes with the federal regulations or at least the federal process to get approved for a suppressor that will be speeding up this process. And then I recently became aware of a company called Silencer Central that actually makes this process easier than I even thought it could be. You can order directly through Silencer Central They guide you step-by-step through all the pieces of paperwork and everything else, and you actually get the suppressor, once approved, delivered straight to your door. So with the Silencer Central process, you actually never go to a physical dealer. Everything happens online and by mail, and I'm actually walking through that process right now. Today we're speaking with Brandon from Silencer Central to not only talk about their services, but to talk about the process of getting suppressors and again, what's changed recently that can make it even quicker to get your suppressor in the future. So guys, I hope you enjoy this episode. Once again, check out the links in the show description if you want to learn more about Silencer Central or read that article uh, of what I've learned about hunting with suppressor in the last couple of years. As always, guys, we appreciate you tuning in. If you have any questions for us, you can send an email to podcast at exomountaingear.com or something new we're trying as well. You can actually leave us a voice message. So look for the link in the show description. You don't have to install an app or make any calls. Just hit that link, leave us a message, and we will receive that and include it in a future episode. All right, let's dive right into this conversation with Brandon. Brandon, welcome to the Hunt Back Country podcast. I'm excited to chat with you today. Yes, sir. No, thanks for having me. We're excited about this opportunity as well. I always like to start off with a guest and get a little bit of personal introduction or background, but sure. I, with your story, we talked the other day and I learned more about you and your background. I'm able to phrase this question to you in a pretty interesting way. I'm excited. I've never thought I'd say this on our podcast, but let me ask you this. Yes. How did you go from being a drug dealer to an arms dealer? Good question. So to, to clarify your question for your audience, <laughs> I'm a registered pharmacist in North Carolina, Florida, and then where I live here in South Dakota. So, um, you know, people always ask, like, what is the, the link there? Um, you know, obviously just enjoying hunting. But really, if you think about like when I was, you know, I'm still a pharmacist, but when I worked as a pharmacist to get my license, um, you know, it's right pill, right bottle, right patient, right doctor, um, right directions. There's so many details that are so important for medication. And, you know, I used to work in a pharmacy and think, gosh, I mean, one error, wrong pill, wrong patient, wrong doctor, wrong, whatever, you could have drug interaction, someone could pass away. So, 
I used sort of that same attention to detail and just sort of the meticulous processes to make sure that we could build a business based on making the processes A, easy for the customer, but B, also factually accurate. So um, we have a great reputation with ATF for submitting them great paperwork and by following the compliance rules where we don't have to worry about our customers or ourselves or our employees being in a position where we're not doing something correctly. So to your question, it's sort of translating, you know, six years of pharmacy college and you know, meticulous details, seeing how important that is, and then sort of translating that to uh, the NFA process where you buy a firearm that is it's fairly involved and uh, you know, the, the consequences are, are more significant than regular firearms with the national firearms act. So um, that's been the transition. I, I think that it was basically just doing your hobby. You know, I was a farm and shooter prairie dogs and saw the benefit and thought I could help other people sort of have the same benefit. Cause really the strength I brought to the table is making the process easy and make sure it was done correctly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we'll go over, the high level process. We're going to talk about what's new because there's been some changes with uh, the e-forms, which some listeners here and that may be somewhat familiar with that. Um, and then just talk about how to get suppressors in general. Uh, I put something out on Instagram to see kind of what questions listeners of the podcast had. And one guy put it a really good way and we'll, we'll get to this question, but he said, can you just share a high level overview on the process of buying a suppressor? And then he specifically said, talk to me like I'm an eight-year-old because it is one of those things where I think people, they hear some lingo and jargon, but like, they just don't understand the basics. Um, So we'll get to that. But just to back up a little bit, you said you were a prairie dog shooter, you know, kind of from your own experience, you wanted a suppressor for all that shooting. And then you realized what a pain it was really to get it, the wait time involved and all that. Um, so I'm assuming that that's what led you to Silencer Central and like starting a company is just, I think there's a better way to do this. Yeah, no, totally. hundred um, percent. You know, I got frustrated with the process and I, I think the process is, you know, probably similar for a lot of people. And, you know, it's not a knock on local dealers. It's just local gun shops are sort of in the business of, you know, me being a pharmacist, I would say kind of treat them and treat them. So, you know, you pick out your firearm, you have a background check, you leave with the firearm. So it's a, it's a single transaction and you're gone. Of course, I'm oversimplifying it, but there was a suppressor that can take several months to acquire and also involves a whole lot more detail that you have to acquire. There's a whole lot of back and forth. And I find that most local gun stores are just not built for that back and forth. Like they don't have a nice file drawer that they keep your information in. So that if you come back in and you're visiting, it's, they're just not set up for that back and forth. And to me, that's what was missing because my experience was probably similar to what other people have seen. The local gun store typically has one person. That's their expertise. They're the point of contact, but the gun store, when they're open, that person is not always there. So it just created an additional obstacle. If I showed up and the person who's my point of contact is not there and no one else can help me. So it just hurt from a continuity perspective. Um, but no, you're right. The first one I bought was, um, you know, I loved it. I was like, man, this is a game changer. I went from, you know, taking a few hundred rounds out to shoot prairie dogs to like running out of ammo the first time. Cause I got so many more shots and 
just a huge game changer. But the first suppressor I bought, I, I went cheap because I honestly couldn't find anyone that had ever used one. I could not find what I would call like a, a case study or a test or a YouTube video. I mean, this is like 2004-ish. Um, so I, I kind of went super cheap just to see if it was going to work kind of on a whim. And the first one I bought, to be honest, was way too heavy. I mean, you would think if you're shooting from a prairie dog bench, you wouldn't care about weight. But as soon as you put that sling on and you're trying to carry your 223 across the prairie to your truck, and you're like, wow, I feel like I have a seesaw on my back. It's just like leaning back. And it just, it, it just, I was like, we can do better. So the second one I bought, um, it was lighter because it was shorter, but then it was just too loud. So, you know, I'm, I'm on my third purchase now going, okay. Uh, the process I'm currently going through is frustrating and, and it's aggravating me. And I, I think I might want to buy a lot of these. So I'm going to do it myself. And then um, the sales pitch to the wife was that her brothers are into guns and that I can help her brothers get silencers. So she, she bought that. Uh, <laughs> she bought that. I'm doing yeah. it for your family. Honey. Exactly. And, you know, I will say that it did help that my wife, um, you know, she's a pharmacist, but so is her, her parents, but her parents own a pharmacy and they have a federal farms license in there. So I knew that, you know, it's going to be hard for her to kind of be uh, anti-gun with pharmacy if her dad, you know, has had it for, you know, 65 years or whatever. So it wasn't necessarily a hard sell, but no, you know, and then the first gun show I worked, gosh, I had a heck of a time getting a table, but the honest truth is there was more people interested at my booth and my booth consisted of, um, you know, part of a table, say 25% of a six foot table. And I just had some black felt down and I had two use silencers that I already had approved and I had a business card and that was it, but I had a huge crowd. So I could tell that, especially for the coyote hunters in the Dakotas, you know, that's that that message of if you call three coyotes in, how many of those three do you want to shoot? And the answer is usually four. So it's like, <laughs> all right, we can help you with that. We're getting you a suppressor. Yeah, that's cool. It's let's before we talk about the process, let's maybe touch on why I don't say, say why suppressors are regulated, but it's so funny because it's backwards if you look at a lot of the rest of the world. So you know, and take countries like South Africa, New Zealand, something like that. It's extremely, extremely difficult to get a firearm, but then suppressors are actually easy to get. And in some places, yeah. almost mandated to use. Yes. Yes. And then here you flip that. It's like, it's really easy to go to a sportsman's warehouse and buy a rifle, but now getting a suppressor for that is difficult, expensive. And then people somehow think you're crazy for wanting one. Yeah. Um, so this goes back, you said NFA earlier, but the NFA, the National Firearms Act was in the 30s, correct? Yes, absolutely. Up 34. You know, it's interesting because I've done a lot of research on it and I've got a lot of papers that I've read, you know, just from some really good, like high level attorneys that I've hired in the past to help us when we are, you know, investigating NFA issues. You know, from everything I've researched and every expert I can talk to, like my assessment of the situation is that the NFA was specifically obviously created for machine guns. There was a lot of you know, sort of gangs that had machine guns, the, the NFA, the $200 tax stamp, that was equivalent to 100% tax on a machine gun. So in 1934, a machine gun was 200 bucks. So they wanted 100% tax on that. Um, you know, there's a couple of theories. So one theory is that um, they were going to put handguns underneath the NFA. And someone said, well, let's, let's trade that out. Let's just do silencers instead. So it's kind of a gift. The other, the other issue is that some people say, well, during the depression, they were worried about people shooting their neighbor's cattle, like poaching cattle. So they wanted to highly regulate silencers. Um, you know, my take on the whole situation is just having experienced political issues. 
if someone is not at the table as an advocate for the suppressors, then that's when bad things happen for laws. So my assumption is that suppressors got put in there for whatever reason, and there was no advocate at the table to say, hey, do we really need to do this? And because there was no advocate there, it's just always been in there since 1934. So that's that's based on all the research I've done, the experts. I mean, I even read some of the congressional testimony when they were looking at the National Firearms Act, putting it in place. I just can't find anything in there that shows me that anyone had any kind of public safety concern. Hmm. Interesting. So yeah, let's let's back up to that question on the high level overview of the process of buying a suppressor, um, the eight year old version for guys yeah. who are brand okay. new. No, no, um, I like that. Yeah. And then we'll transition both into talking about how you guys at Science or Central do things a little bit differently. Um, and then again, some of what's changed here recently with the e-forms. But yeah, just start with like super basics, high level. I want a suppressor. What does that look like? Yeah, good question. So honestly, the best analogy I've come up with, and remember, I've been telling this story for 17 years at gun shows. So I, I, I have it polished down a little bit, hopefully. But the best analogy I've come up with, it's like buying a truck. And almost everything with buying a truck is exactly the same as buying a suppressor with the exception of if you buy a truck, you typically can leave the lot with your truck, whereas with a suppressor, you can't. But in my mind, everything else holds true. So think of the silencer as a serialized item that the ATF has in uh, it's, it's been titled to me. So just like the truck, uh, the VIN number is titled to the dealer. Um, same thing here. The silencer is titled to me. So that serial number is in our business name. The feds have it underneath my EIN, which is, of course, kind of like the business's social security number. So the, the silencer is titled to me. And the entire uh, process is basically me asking ATF to retitle the ownership of the silencer from me, the dealer, to you. So just the same as if you were to buy a truck and the dealership says, hey, we want to retitle this from us, the dealer, to the customer, and then it goes to the courthouse locally. And then, of course, the courthouse will charge you a fee in most states to do that transfer. Same thing with buying a suppressor. The feds charge a $200 tax, been the same since 1934, and that tax is for them to process the transfer. And the, it's interesting because it's underneath tax law. Um, you know, of course, Congress can regulate taxes, so it's not necessarily seen as much as a, even though, you know, for me, from a compliance perspective, it's obviously a, a firearms regu regulatory issue and a compliance issue. But from the government's perspective, it's also um, an IRS slash tax issue. So that paperwork we're filling out for you essentially is a tax return. So we have to treat it that way. ATF has to treat it that way. We're very um, rigid on shredding everything we have here because it's truly a tax return. But going back to the analogy of um, title transfer. So we're asking the feds to take the title in their database of it being titled to us and titling it to the customer. So what they do is they're going to run a background check to make sure that that customer basically can own a firearm. So it's no more specific than a regular, you know, what they call a next check that the FBI runs, where it's checking to make sure that you're not a prohibited person, meaning you don't have a felony or any kind of domestic violence that would preclude you from lawfully owning a firearm. So once the feds collect their money, check to make sure that you can legally own it, they send back to me, think of it as a title of ownership. And there's a tax stamp on there. And that tax stamp is just showing you pay the 200 bucks. And that form four that we completed on your behalf and that you signed and that the feds approved basically is your title ownership. And it has retitled the suppressor from us to you. So think of that suppressor once it, um, once it gets approved and comes back to us, 
we still have to transfer it to you, just like you would say that handgun you were talking about earlier that you buy at you know the local hardware or uh, sporting goods store. You have to do the forty four seventy three, so then it transfers from the dealer. Um, and then the, the the issue there is it's the Gun Control Act, so that's nineteen sixty eight. So it's the NFA combined with Gun Control Act. But again, in simplest terms, it's titled uh, the item is titled to us, the dealer. We ask the feds to retitle it to you. Once they retitle it, they charge two hundred bucks to do it. They ask the FBI to do a background check to make sure you can own it. They send it back to us, and then we do an approval, and then we can mail it to your front door. So is that too is that too high level or was that full eighth grade or maybe no not? <laughs> that's that's good. What I anticipate listeners thinking at this point is how come it has historically taken me a year to get a suppressor titled to me, right? And it's yes, specifically yes. because as you mentioned, I think maybe a misunderstanding that's out there is you mentioned the background check is essentially just like any other background check. It's the background yeah. check essentially that you get when yep. you go to buy that firearm in the store. So it's like, yeah. goodness gracious, there's not like this, the FBI is not coming to your house. They're not talking to your third grade teacher. They're not doing oh. anything extra. So like, why is it taking so dang long historically totally. to make this happen? Yeah, no, good question. So, and I think you're right. So like when I talk to customers in the past, I sense they think they're getting, you know, like a rectal exam or, you know, it's like, what's yeah. taking the, you know, 10 months to do this? That's a good question. So the NFA branch, the people who process these are in West Virginia. They did a time and motion study and they looked at when the paperwork leaves uh, Silencer Central and goes to them, how many times is it actually physically touched? So it's touched 42 times at that, that time when they did that study was touched 42 times. So typically when I present to a crowd, I say, anytime you have the federal government touching something 42%, 42 times, you got a problem. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, right. and that's, that, that honestly is the problem. Um, you know, it's basically understaffed, under-resourced people are doing overtime. They just, and unfortunately they're not organized because, you know, customers will call us and say, Hey, you know, I want you to do this or do that. And I'm like, you know, the ATF is not that organized. They don't have a file drawer where I call and tell them, Hey, this is Brandon. I need you to pull out so-and-so's and update it with this. It just, it doesn't work that way. So think of it as, um, you know, stacks and stacks of forms just in piles. And then they get to them in order based on, you know, the, the first one in first one out. So they they're working them based on age, you know, and it's changed over the years. Gosh, I've been doing this since 2005 years ago, you used to have an examiner per state. And then the theory there was they were familiar with your state laws and they would process them. Then they went to examiners would cover more than one state. And now they all work the same piles, but um, yeah, it's basically just uh, um you know, think of it as there's more work than there are people to actually do it, which is interesting because what you'll find in my experience is that when approvals are quicker, I sell more. And when I sell more, it sends more volume to them and then they slow mm -hmm. down again. And then when they slow down, my sales go down. And then when my sales go down, they get caught up. So it's, it is a, it's a flywheel kind of thing. It's very interesting. It's a, it's a bottleneck. Um, that's why obviously we're excited that they're changing some of their processes internally. But um, I know some people think the government doesn't want us to own them and they're trying to be hard to deal with. And, you know, my experience, I would say probably twice a year, I've been to the NFA branch to visit, have tours, look around, talk to the leadership and the workers there. And I, I don't get that impression. Um, people in West Virginia are, you know, just like me and everyone else, I, I sense that they're, they have no agenda. Okay. 
I've gone through this process twice. Uh, both times I feel fairly lucky. It took about six to seven months because yeah. as you said, it fluctuates, but uh, yeah. here more recently, it's been like eight, 10, 12. I know, yeah. you know, just tracking even some friends yeah. and there can be some variety there, but here just really at the end of 2021, beginning of 2022, they brought on a new process, uh, basically e-forms. Yes. And so the hope is that this can get down to 60 to 90 days, maybe optimistic. Yeah. It's the government. Yeah. We'll see. But yeah. new process, hopefully not touching paperwork 42 times, as you said, and then hopefully yeah. shorter lead time. So tell us a bit about that process, or at least what you know of it. But then more specifically, at the end of the day, like, is there really hope that these lead times are going to decrease? Because if people are here in this podcast now, say they did buy a suppressor today, guys are thinking, I'm not going to have this thing for my hunt in September or October. But with e-forms, maybe that might be possible. That's hopefully possible. So it, it could change the game. Yeah, good question. And so to go back to your original point, I think you're just looking at your last name since it's somewhat unique. I'll be honest with you. I think that's what helps your approvals go through quicker. What what customers don't understand is, I mean, we'll get customers to call and say, my neighbor got his three months quicker. You guys screwed up. Or, you know, oddly enough, when they do a background check on you, if there's another person with the same name who's a felon or someone with a similar birth date within a few days or a few years, it requires a manual review. And what's interesting about the FBI is that if you buy a handgun and they have to do a manual review, there's like federal statutes that say they only have so many days to look at that. So you're probably familiar with that sort of, you know, if after five days, the ATF or the FBI doesn't say you can't have it, the dealer can give it to you. So there isn't a similar statute with silencers. So if you buy a suppressor and your background conflicts with someone else's, or maybe you've been arrested and they have to try to figure out how it ended, um, there's no five days and then they put an approval on there. They actually dig in until they figure it out. And the problem is because there's no five-day deadline, FBI just does these in between other approvals. So it doesn't get the priority it needs. So that's why you can see someone who's maybe a six-month approval and then someone's a nine-month and then it's easy to say the dealer screwed up, but it could be your last name. So that's just a, an insight. 35% of all FBI background checks go to a further review. So that gives you some insight. It's a pretty that high number. It is. It is. Yeah. And that's, and what's interesting to me is most people don't know if they go to a further review because it might go manually over to an FBI person who looks at it and they go, okay, no, these aren't the same people and boom, you got to prove. So you would not even probably know that you've uh, are always getting delayed. That's why I'm a big proponent of the state laws where you use your concealed carry and there's no background check just to force the dealer to say, Hey, federal law doesn't require you to do a background check, put my, you know, concealed carry active number in here, check that box, no background check is done and let's move forward. Um, yeah, so sorry for that tangent, but to your question on e-forms, what's interesting about e-forms is in 2013, we got to, you know, witness it um, fully operational. And when I say fully operational, I mean really all forms, like form one to make a short barrel rifle, a uh, form two to transfer from, or to make the item as a, as a manufacturer, a form three to transfer from dealer to dealer, a form four, which is what we were talking about earlier of transferring it from a dealer to the individual. So, and the form five to transfer it to a government agency or if someone died to transfer it to their uh, beneficiary. So um, we saw it in full force, the e-forms and it really doubled our sales. I mean, there is a huge correlation between turnaround time and people's willingness to wait, to spend money, to go through a process. So 
The problem was in 2014, the system was overwhelmed. The e-form system for Form 4 specifically for the customers. Um, it was almost this self-fulfilling prophecy that once they made it easier to approve them, more people started buying them and it just overwhelmed the system. And it basically crashed. And I, they also had some insight that Obama was going to do an executive order that was going to change the way um, trust were uh, looked at from the NFA process, which would make their current system inoperative and it wouldn't work. So they basically pulled it offline. So from 2014 until today, you know, until the December, December 23rd of 2021, um, Form 4s had been offline digitally. So they've been working on trying to rebuild that. Um, you know, a lot of people heard about the Hearing Protection Act. You know, we were obviously think, thinking that that would obviously be a positive for us if that went through where they're deregulated. But what we did is we worked with our elected official. You know, we're fortunate to have, you know, Senator John Thune. He's number two in the Senate for his seniority on the Republican side, uh, leads the Commerce Committee. You know, we worked with him to go to the ATF and actually figure out how much money they needed so that they could build a better e-form system. And I know that one point Trump ended up putting it into the budget and the ATF got more money to build the system they have now. So it did go live in December of last year, late December. Um Feedback on how it's working. So initially, like any government launch, it was a little buggy. Um, I, I think what I like about it is having sat at the table next to what I would call the chief technology officer for all of ATF and talking to him. I'm 100% convinced, at least from his feedback, that they're going to fully resource this. So uh, I see them fixing bugs like real time, like there's an issue, they're, they're working on it, they're fixing it, they're uploading changes, they're making enhancements, you're seeing things improve daily. So just because they're improving daily doesn't mean that it's flawless, but um, it started out a little slow. It, it, it connects to the, you know, the pay.gov so that you can pay that we pay the tax stamp for our customers through that. Um, but right now, to talk about it like specifically and where I think it'll be in the future. So the NFA branch has said publicly in the ATF that their goal is to get to 90 days so that we have 90 day turnarounds on e-forms. They are um, publicly stating that they'll staff it for 90 day turnarounds so that if at any point the, the turnaround is, is greater than 90 days, they'll hire more, they'll hire more people, which is great. So all that sounds good. But the pro, you know, the bigger question is how long is it going to take them to get to that? The insight I have is at SHOT Show, I sat in um, you know, sort of their town hall meeting, the ATF town hall meeting. And then every year at SHOT Show, we have... Um, sort of a leadership meeting with the head of the ATF, the ATF sort of senior leadership, 15 of them. We sit down, Silencer Central as a company. We have an ongoing, you know, sit down meeting with them. And the feedback we got was that in 2021, March, uh, due to the social unrest pandemic, they got about 50,000 um, applications, Form 4s for suppressors in. And they say that 50,000 will take them four to five months. So they got, last year, they got, a, they got hammered with paper forms. So the feedback they gave us is we're going to double down and we're going to focus on the March 2021 um, paper forms. And we're not going to touch e-forms until we work through that. And it's going to take four to five months for us to do that. And that was a speech they gave and, and feedback they gave in January. So um, what, basically what I heard from them is we're at an all-time high as far as a backlog. If we start approving e-forms instantaneously as they're being um, put in the system, the hundred, you know, the, the 200,000 forms that are sitting on our desk and paper, people will start wanting to withdraw those or cancel them or, you know, and convert it to digital. 
And I'll, I'll be honest, that caught me off guard because that's not what they did last time. So I didn't anticipate that they would have this and they hadn't hinted to this. They they had said before that, hey, we'll take the IOIs, the industry operations investigators that do the compliance inspections for the explosives and FFL licenses. They basically said, we'll take them off the street. We'll have them work the form fours, get that queue down so that then when we launch form fours uh, digitally, there won't be anything in the queue. Well, that didn't happen and probably impacted by the pandemic. But um, because the Form 4s weren't worked down, I think that's the way they're going to try to bleed them down is work through the paper ones. So long story short, I think that for the next few months, you're going to see them focused on paper because they are so far behind. I would guess that right now they probably have 100,000 applications or more already in digitally. I think once they start approving them digitally, it's going to fly through. Um, so people might feel like they're waiting longer right now because digital is not getting approved instantly, but I'm guessing probably a four to a five month wait on digital right now. And that's if you have submitted it since the system went live at the end of December. But if you're submitting them now, it might even be quicker just because they're going to be able to work through the paper ones in the next few months. And then they're going to start hitting the digital ones hard. So the question is, do I think it's going to speed it up? Absolutely, 100%. Everyone in the industry does too. I mean, we're stocking the shelves, putting more material out there for that. You know, I'm worried a little bit about, you know, we use a lot of titanium. You can only source titanium out of China or Russia, just the events in Ukraine, making us sort of rethink most of our titanium comes from China because that's the biggest supplier. But, you know, we do get some from from Russia and, and the conflict there, how that could impact it just because of the increased demand. But um we definitely think it's going to skyrocket demand. I think that to your point, a lot of hunters are getting into it than in the past, maybe haven't been in it. And just because their friends are, and then they see the major benefit of hunting suppressed, they're going to want to get into that game because their buddy is. Um, so I only see it improving, but is it going to improve instantly? No, I feel like the ATF's committed to it. I feel like they're putting the resources behind it. I feel like that um, they don't like the congressional oversight. Um, you know, we actually have Senator Thune coming to visit our office tomorrow and, you know, we had secret service and capital of the federal capital police here yesterday, just sort of scouting us out. It's kind of interesting because, you know, we're a 50,000 square foot building full of guns. <laughs> so <laughs> it's kind of, you know, thinking through, but the worst thing, and I don't know if I would have known this and if I hadn't been in the industry so long, but ATF does not like a call from a U.S. Senator or U.S. Congressman saying, Hey, I have a very rich constituent here that owns several businesses that's contributing to my society and they're having to wait a year to get a muffler for their rifle. Walk me through what the hell's going on up in West Virginia. That's the call they don't want. So um, they hate congressional inquiries, um, which I use to my benefit. If they, if they aren't answering questions I want quick enough, or if they're not answering the way I want, I get Senator Thune's office to help. But um you know, they don't like all that scrutiny. So there is an incentive for them to try to find a way to um, to approve these quicker. And I think they feel like they have found that. They f I, I feel like they've convinced me they're all in on making sure it works. I feel like they're all in on scaling it. I know they have the budget money because just our U.S. Senator Thune working with the Trump administration and the National Shooting Sports Foundation to get that money in the budget. I know the money's there. So I think it, I think it changes the industry. I mean, like I said, um, I, I don't feel like I had as big of a megaphone back in 2013 and 14 because I was just working gun shows and sportsman shows. So the people I could talk to there, I was doubling my sales when I talked about e-forms. But now that we have a bigger audience and more interest and there's 3 million silencers already on the market that are out there in the population, I think as more and more people hear about e-forms, it's going to get them interested in how, how do I do that? How do I get into that game? How do I, how do I take advantage of this new process? Yeah. So 
I want to step back to the process and then talk a little bit about what you guys do because it's different than going to your local dealer or other ways um, to acquire a suppressor, which I've done in the past. I mentioned I've never thought about your analogy of buying a truck. So I'm going to try and riff on that (laughs) a little bit. No, please do. Yeah, no, (laughs) but I've never thought about it. So this is rough. So I, you know, all right, let me equate buying a suppressor to buying a truck in my previous experience, right? Like you have to go do some shopping, you have to go to dealers, you have to find the right model and then make a deal and then you buy it. And then you still have to go to the DMV and, you know, deal with the title paperwork and then also make sure you have all your paperwork. And maybe if you don't have something on hand, you have to go to the county and get like for, in my case, a personal property tax receipt. Like there's this lot of manual work on my end and like physical trips here and physical trips there. And at the end of the day, at some point I get a title in the mail that says, yes, this truck is mine. Right. And as you said, the whole difference is for a truck, the whole time I've been driving my new truck, I just don't have the title in the mail. Yeah. The take that same idea and go, I'm now going to order a truck online and the complete purchase happens online. All the paperwork happens online And I get both a truck and the title delivered to my door without ever visiting a dealer, without me going to the DMV, without me going to the courthouse, without me doing anything. I just bought online and boom, a truck showed up titled to me and I'm done. That's like buying through Silencer Central a suppressor. So you take out these trips to these places and doing these things and it all just kind of happens through some emails and your website, basically. Um, Yeah. 100%. No, I like that. You actually did a good job there. So, (laughs) um, you know, it's interesting because like, yeah, I, I I would say I didn't come from like the gun world and I would say like, I'm not like a mega hunter who's hunted all my life. So I think when, when, when I present myself, like um, my background is probably different than what most people think of when they think of like firearms or firearms manufacturer or, so, you know, when I sit in front of a crowd and I talk about this, I could tell 100% of the people in the room are skeptical. Um, now, I got invited to like this conference where there were 75 outdoor writers that, you know, would write for a lot of the bigger magazines out there. And I, I sense they're all like really skeptical, like how how was he able to do this? And then, you know, after I spent a few minutes walking them through how this has evolved over the last 17 years, gosh, they're on the tip of their seat, like saying, wow, this is a big deal. Like this guy's figured out how to work with the ATF to get variances, to do things differently than other people. This guy has, has taken the federal law the way it's written now and create a business model around it instead of trying to find a ways to fight it or change it. Um, they're like, wow, this is super cool. But no, I love you. I love your analogy because essentially that's what happens. And, you know, we started out as what I would call a regional company. You know, I started in South Dakota. I worked every show I could find in South Dakota. I would start working shows that were close to North Dakota and North Dakota customers would come over and I couldn't sell to them because I wasn't licensed in North Dakota. So then I said, let's get a license in North Dakota. And then that's when I had to really do my due diligence to figure out how do you manage two locations? Because it is significantly different than managing one location. But the the reality to the silencer the silencer central sort of business model is we have 42 locations in in every state where suppressors are legal and those are federal farms licenses uh, physical locations those are we have our SOT which is a license needed to sell suppressors so um, 
basically we're able to make all that work because we have a physical location in every state, but you're right. We have taken the entire process and converted it into a hundred percent digital process, which I find played really well during the pandemic. And the problem with the pandemic was my sheriff's office is closed down. I'm not going to be able to get my fingerprints done. I don't think I'm going to be able to make a purchase. What do I do? Uh, Sir, we can send you the fingerprint cards and ink, and we can show you a video on how you do your own fingerprints and you submit them to us. We scan them digitally, and then we'll upload them to the ATF for the e-form. So it seems like almost every sort of concern that the customer come up with, we've spent the last 17 years trying to fix. You know, one concern is, uh, people don't want to have to pay for a suppressor 100% up front and then wait a year to get it. I'd say that's a huge obstacle. Just even if you have the money mentally, uh, it's a hard sell to the wife too. It's like when you come home with a you know $500 Yeti cooler, it's like, what were you thinking? Did you really need a $500 cooler? And this is even worse. I, you know, I, I spent over 500 bucks and I don't get it for a year. You know, that's a tough conversation with the wife. So, you know, what Silencer Central has done is we say, Hey, no interest, no fees. We're going to let you pay while you wait. And that's one reason why, um, you know, we, we, we heard eForms was coming. We said, hey, four payments. You know, the first payment you make is a fourth and then each each one until it's approved. And then once it's approved, you're paid off. We mail it to your front door. So that's a big one. You know, and then the digital part, we've done a good job um, working with the federal regulators. Um, just from a business perspective, I would feel uncomfortable trying to scale a business if I, if I wasn't 100% convinced that our federal regulators were on board with what we're doing and how we do it and how we process it. You know, I mean, it's 100% owned by me, but still, I don't want to be in a situation where my employees are afraid they're doing something wrong or that our customers are afraid that, gosh, they didn't do it right. Now it's going to get, you know, rug pulled out from underneath me. So we've done a great job creating a lot of transparency with the ATF. And honestly, we sit down with them two to three times a year and just kind of open our books and say, hey, here's what we're doing. Uh, are you okay with this process? And the hard part about doing that is you're going to hear, we don't like that process and then you got to change it. And typically when you change it, it's more expensive, but it gives me comfort in knowing that we're doing what they want and there's no surprises. I'm not going to get a knock at the door one day that says, Hey, we never told you you could do that. It's like, no, we documented this meeting. We wrote up a you know a process and you guys approved it. So um, as good of a relationship as you can have with a federal regulatory body um, is I feel like what we have. And it's just based on transparency, open communication, and hey, here's how we're doing it. We're not trying to hide anything. Are we doing it correctly? But everything we can do um, digitally, we can send you the paperwork digitally to do it. We can um, upload it to the e-forms. Um, we can, the, the final 4473 that you do before we actually mail it to your front door, you do digitally. So our entire process, to your point, is 100% digital, which just makes it easier. You don't have to worry if it's you know printed out and sitting on your desk somewhere. The only thing we have to get back really from you physically are your fingerprints. And then once we have those and scan them in, we have those in the future on file if you need to you know acquire something else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'll share uh, the start of this process of, for myself to get one of those suppressors through Silencer Central. So I've essentially had a call with you guys to not only get some basic information, but to even talk about what suppressor I want to order. Um, and then got an email shortly after that call that really outlined the entire process, uh, which was really helpful. Um, a couple days later, I got an email asking me to take a photo, told me how to take the photo, and then just submit it online. So I did that. Um, here just a few days after that, I got a, uh, a request to digitally sign essentially all the paperwork, uh, which was easy to review and sign again, 100% online. And then just yesterday, which was only a couple days after all this, I got my finger 
print kit in the mail. As you said, watch the video, did my fingerprints last night, and that's going back into the mail today. So from a call with you guys to about a week later, I've submitted my photo, I've signed the paperwork, and now I'm sending off my fingerprints. And I think once you guys receive that, uh, you review it to make sure that they're good prints. And then I get confirmation that they're good prints. And then from there, I'm done, right? Pretty much. Yeah, good question. So we'll submit all your paperwork to ATF and it'll be in a draft stage. And then we'll probably, we'll circle back with you again, just to get your eyes on that before we hit submit to make sure that everything is 100% correct. Because we'll take that trust we created for you. We'll upload that. We'll upload your fingerprints. We'll upload your photo. And then we'll get your eyes on it to make sure, hey, everything's buttoned down. And then we hit submit. So yeah, there's really just one more last step. We'll issue a serial number to it as well. So, and actually probably did that when we sent the paperwork. So the serial number was issued, but yeah, no, it's, it's super turnkey. I mean, that's the, that's the goal where everyone kind of feels like they know what's happening. But what I like is that you called in and talked to our team because a lot of people say like, gosh, what's the first step? And you know, I, I, I'm paying like, you know, 40 guys to sit out there and answer the phone and they're absolute gun nuts. We just moved our uh, office from upstairs to downstairs. And I, I was kidding this morning in our group huddle that, um, you know, if I moved 40 people in customer service, you're going to see paper clips and chips and pens underneath their chairs and cubes. But you move 40 sales guys that sell silencers and play with guns all day. We found spent rounds and ammo. And <laughs> <laughs> it was kind of yeah. funny just to look at the floor after all the furniture has moved down. There's, you can tell it's all gun nuts out there. But no, I encourage folks, hey, the phone number is on the website for Silencer Central. Call them, ask some tough questions. Um, you know, what, what you might learn is that you could buy one suppressor and cover all of your, you know, hunting rifles with one. And then that might be something right there. You didn't even know it was possible. You were thinking you're going to have to get one for every caliber and every rifle where, you know, there's a lot of scenarios where you can pick one and kind of be a multi-caliber and cover everything. Yeah. Cool. You mentioned uh, a trust just a second ago. We mentioned it earlier. And that is definitely one thing that comes up when people look, whether they use silencer central or go to a local dealer is, you can register uh, your suppressor as an individual or create and then register that suppressor to a trust. So you just, again, like the eight-year-old high level, what is the difference? What are the pros and cons of doing so? Yeah, good question. So, um, you know, I bought my first three as an individual and I realized quickly I made a mistake. So the disclaimer here is that most local dealers will tell you not to use a trust because it makes the process harder for them. So um, it's not a knock on a local gun store. It's just, it's, if, a, if a, the, most gun stores are not going to offer a service to help you get a trust. So it puts you, it puts a barrier between you buying a suppressor between the, you know, the consumer and the dealer. So a lot of, a lot of people come to us and say, Hey, my local dealer says, don't use a trust. Why would I use a trust? So they're kind of already against the idea. So in simplest terms, think of the trust as basically like an entity, almost like a business, if you will. Think of it as a think of it as an entity is probably the best way to think about it. And we're transferring the title of ownership of the silencer from us, the dealer, to your entity. And when it's your entity, you have control over it. You can decide who's on that entity that can use it. You can decide who on your entity gets the property of the entity when you die. So um you know, th- yeah, think of it as an entity that's going to own it. And what I love about it is you could take people off and on. And our insight is that, you know, we talked earlier that 35% of people that have a background check get um, go through further review. It's delayed. 
Um, we recommend putting the trust only in your name specifically. Then the feds only have to do one FBI background check, next background check on you. Then when it comes back approved, we can add anyone you want, as long as they're 18 or older, to be able to use that suppressor when you're not there, have possession of it. And there's no background check done. There's no information sent to ATF. There's there's no additional legwork as far as the government is concerned. It's basically a stroke of a pen for you. And you can add anyone you want to your trust that can use it. And they can use it when you're not there, which is great. So it kind of goes back to that. The entity owns it. You're in charge of the entity. And you can decide who you put on there. So some people then say, well, if it's an entity, I already have an LLC or I already have a company. I want to put it on that. And my experience is I just say, hey, you know, that sounds great, but I'm going to give you a trust free. Silencer Central gives every customer a trust free because we feel like that's the best way to buy it. And we don't want to create an obstacle for the customer to get it. And to be honest with you, anytime you're running a business and you're selling 75 to 85,000 silencers a year, if everyone's under the same process, it makes it more efficient for us and the customer. So we we just, it's a, it's a service that we pay a lot for upfront to get one made for every state, but we feel like that, you know, ATF's vetted them. They've read them. They've asked a ton of questions on each state. We, we know we're in a good spot there. Um, but it's, it's the best option for the customer. What I find is having done this so long is that if, if a customer dies, it's the responsibility is left on the spouse to try to figure out how to transfer this to a loved one. And it's honestly, it's the same paperwork you fill out when you buy a suppressor. So think of a, you know, think of your widow who has a silencer who hopefully is, is older because that means you live longer and they're sitting there holding a suppressor and now they got to do the same paperwork you did and they got no dealer there to help them do it. So it just creates an obstacle and the trust fixes that. The trust identifies who gets it. Um, the trust, the, the language that's in our trust is that any lawful heir per state law can inherit it. So you don't have to necessarily pick who gets it. It keeps it vague. So then your spouse or whoever you put down sibling or whoever you want to be kind of the executor of your trust can pick someone who gets it. Maybe someone, you know, I always say I have two daughters, hope they never get married. I know they will. At some point they're going to have a son that's probably going to want it. I don't know who that is now. So I can't put their name on my trust, but by leaving it vague, the spouse can pick who gets it. So definitely always, 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 in my mind, do a trust. There's zero downside to it. Um, it. Just put yourself on there only is what we recommend when it comes back approved, add whoever you want. And then, you know, sometimes guys call and say, hey, I went through divorce. Can you take her off? Yes, we can do that as well. So, and we don't charge anything to manage that for you. Okay. And you said that's created up front as well as part of the, the standard yeah. process of purchasing. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So basically we have a computer program that takes all the data you give us and we make your paperwork and we make your trust for you based on the information you provide. So some of the questions we're asking you are helping create that. Okay. And again, just to go back to the talking to the, the talking to the eight-year-old, and I don't say that demeaning. I think it's a no, very I get valid it. point that this guy brought it's up. Totally true. Totally true. Understanding the legality of possession with the suppressor is important. Um, so my first suppressor is registered as an individual. That doesn't mean that no one else can shoot it, but it must be in my possession for yep. them to possess it or use it in any way. So for example, uh, I was uh, hunting with my daughter this past fall. She killed her first deer and she was using one of my suppressors. I was there with her at her side, totally legal, totally cool. Yep. However, if actually this is a perfect scenario. So it happened to be Halloween. It was in the evening. She helped me start to process the deer, but then it was Halloween. And then it was like time for them to go trick or treat. And I told my wife, I was like, all right, go ahead and go ahead and take her. You guys go trick or treat. I'll finish this. Right. If I had put my rifle in my wife's vehicle 
and she drove away. She was in possession of my suppressor without me. Technically, we just broke the law. Yeah, correct. Yeah, totally. So anytime I ask the ATF this question, they say, if you can still physically see that person, you haven't lost possession of it. So I always think that's a good analogy too, if you're out in the field with someone and they're using one. Okay. Yeah. Why, yeah. So why even subject yourself to that? So like, yeah, we'll create a trust for you. I suspect you're going to put your wife as sort of like the successor trustee. When you die, she's in charge. And then um, you're going to call us back once it's approved and we're going to add anyone else you want. So we, so your wife is a backup if you die, but she's not going to be on there initially. So you'll call us back. You'll give us her full name. We'll create some paperwork you sign. Then she's on the trust and you're right. Then she could have possession of it. So yeah, that, you know, first, when I first started doing this, I was like, ah, trust makes it complicated. Lawyers are complicated. State law is complicated. This is a mess. But once we dug in and said, you know what, we got to figure this out because here's the reality back in 2013, the only way you could submit e-forms for form four, the only way to do it is if the customer bought with a trust. So guess what? Uh, everyone wanted to buy underneath the trust so they could go do e-forms. Originally the trust started, you know, um, years ago because, um, before August of 2016, you had to get your local sheriff to sign off on it. And that was considered kind of the background check because back in 1934, when this was created, there was no national computer where you could pull up and see if someone's a felon. The assumption was your local sheriff would know if you are. So you had to get their permission to kind of sign off to buy it. And some counties um, would just say, hey, we're not going to sign off on it. We don't have time to deal with this. And because of that, people were putting them underneath the trust because the trust was considered at that time, it was considered a company and not an individual. So honestly, there was no background check on any purchases through a trust um, that and it negated the impact of the sheriff. So that's why it was popular, you know, pre-2016. People thought once the law changed and now we have to do a background check on everyone on the trust, people quit using trust. But ATF will tell you it's about 50-50, 50% of what goes through is individual, the other 50% is trust. Hmm. So you mentioned the first few suppressors you purchased were individual. Um, and it, I just know that this question is going to come up if we don't address it. Um, you can transfer that suppressor, like one that's even for me uh, that I own as an individual into a trust, but you're essentially starting over on this process again, meaning you have to resubmit paperwork that it has to go through a new transfer, as we talked about earlier, like basically transferring title, right? You're transferring it from yourself to the trust, which means you're going to submit all the paperwork again. You're going to pay 200 bucks again. You're going to have a weight involved again. Uh, the one unique thing about this scenario is you already do have approval as an individual. So you get to keep your suppressor at that point, but to transfer from individual to a trust, like say a guy buys a trust with you guys, you know, moving forward, he already has an item. Um, it's possible to take your individual item, register it to the trust, but you essentially have to pay the 200 bucks, go through the process again. Correct. Yeah, good question. So, you know, there's there's two ways to get that item into the trust. Always say that you get one free transfer as an individual, uh, and that's when you die. <laughs> so <laughs> you could you could put in your will that you know it's transferred from from your individual into your trust, and it would be a free uh, tax stamp transfer. It'd be a form five, so it's kind of an asset. Um, but a service that I'm willing to like offer up that I think people find attractive, at least in my days working the show, is that if you buy a suppressor from Silencer Central, we'll give you a free trust. And if you have other silencers out there 
that are in your name that you want to transfer, I'll do the paperwork for you. You just got to pay the tax stamp and we'll even let you put, put it on our easy pay. If you want, if you want to pay for it while you're waiting for it, you know, it's not a money thing. It's just, we have to write a check to the feds for that $200, but um, it keeps it clean. Cause then it's all in one entity. Um, you know, we're, we're, we'll already have your trust. We'll have your fingerprints. We'll have your photo. We'll have kind of everything we need. Only thing we ask the customer to do is send us a copy of their form four because we're going to pull all the information off of that. But yeah, we do a lot of those guys come up the show and say, man, I wish I'd bought underneath the trust. You know, my local dealer talked me out of it. He said, I'd have to hire a lawyer. I didn't want to have to deal with it as a bigger asset. God, I want to do a trust now. And we say, Hey, well, we'll give you one free. If you buy a suppressor from us, some guys will buy the cheapest silencer we have, and then we'll transfer all their others in. So, <laughs> you know, it's funny. I was at a show one time and um, this guy said, Hey, if I buy a silencer from you, you transfer everything I have into um, to this new trust. And I was thinking like, you know, maybe he had one or two, this guy, um, I think he had 30 machine guns. I mean, I like overcommitted. I mean, I yeah. ended, we obviously ended up doing it, but I was like, man, just because it was cool to see all the paperwork from all the machine guns he owned, but kind of the <laughs> same thing. I think he saw the value of the machine guns that he probably had several hundred thousand dollars worth of machine guns there and made sense to kind of tie that button, button that down a little bit. So you know who's going to get them when you pass away. <laughs> yeah. Goodness. I might have to take you up on that. That's good to know. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those good, um, you know, some guys will say, oh, I'm going to do a form one, make my own silencer. We say, Hey, well, why don't you buy a silencer from us? We'll give you a free trust. And then you can put your form one into that trust. Oh, I like that. Let's get a silencer started. So, you know, it's, yeah. I'm always into, Hey, what can we help you do that you want? Okay. You want to get what you already have into the trust? We could do that. If you buy a suppressor, we'll work with you. We have all our information in front of us anyway, and we have it all on file. So it's just as easy to process two as it is three or one. Yeah. Cool. Um, let's see, there's so much more, but we're coming up on time. What's you mentioned services. And obviously we just talked about managing the trust as a great service that you guys provide. But one thing I found unique, I didn't realize up front is you guys offer the barrel threading. So I've heard from so many podcast listeners, you know, since I've started shooting suppressed a couple of years ago about, you know, I have this rifle, I want to shoot a suppressor. I need to get a barrel threaded. What do I do? What's the recommendation? So you guys actually offer that as a service as well, which again, it always sounds scary at first thinking of like shipping a rifle and how is this legal and yada, yada, yada. So talk us through uh, kind of cost timeline, legality, things people need to know if they're considering that as well. Yeah, good question. So, um, you know, I sometimes tell this um, to audiences, but, you know, Bo Jackson, the football player, um, you know, I told him I'd thread all his barrels because he's a nice guy. He's born in Alabama like me. So he and I kind of hit it off when he came here to Pheasant So I told him I'd thread all his barrels for free. And, you know, you know where the story's headed. He's got more rifles than, you know, <laughs> I think he said 30 <laughs> rifles in to get threaded. Um So we do offer threading. And what I found is, you know, our goal is to make it easy to buy a suppressor and working shows. I would see in guys' eyes, they, I want to get a suppressor, but I don't trust my local, you know, local gunsmith to A, know how to do it or B, have the expertise or even have the experience. And that was becoming an obstacle while they were buying. The other thing I found is literally a hundred percent of any warranty claims that we got for any suppressors that came back, a hundred percent of it was because of it wasn't aligned properly because it wasn't threaded properly. So I thought, Hey, how do we bring barrel threading in house so that we can get rid of any kind of warranty claims, but also keep people from saying, I don't want to buy one because, 
Um, so what we do, what we did is we bought, um, you know, a CNC lathe, which you're going to find not too many people have a CNC lathe for doing barrel threading. Some people might have a manual lathe, but a CNC lathe is basically a computerized machine. It's expensive. We spent a lot of money hiring someone to write a program to thread all the barrels just because of different materials you have. You can get spindles that come off and they can scratch your barrel. And so there's, it's hard to believe that paying someone, you know, three or four days to program something to thread barrels and make sure that it'll work on every barrel correctly and, and come out perfect is what we've done. So we do uh, about 200 barrels a day. I have a CNC lathe that takes 90 seconds to thread the barrel. It takes about 25 minutes to take the rifle apart. So I also, ha so I have a gunsmith that that's all he does all day long is take guns apart. And then I have a machinist that all day long, that's all he does is thread barrels. Right now it's about a two week turnaround. And the way it works is we use FedEx ground. We'll mail you an empty gun case, an empty, empty rifle case. You put your rifle in there and we just ask that you take your accessories off. So if you have optics on there or slings or, you know, anything you have on there, and it's not because we don't know how to take it off and that we don't mind taking it off. It's just, it gets broken in the mail. We don't want your stuff broken. So if people will take their accessories off, mail their rifle to us, we thread the barrel. We put a thread protector on there that matches the diameter of your barrel and we mail it back to you. So the threading service is hundred bucks. So we usually say 80 bucks to thread it, 20 bucks for the thread protector that matches the diameter of your barrel. Um, yeah, I, I, obviously it's a popular service. What's interesting is around hunting season, my gunsmith and uh, machinist, they don't get a whole lot of rifles in. People really want to hold tight to those puppies. But after hunting season's over, uh, when FedEx Ground comes to bring all these return packages, it's amazing how many rifles we get in. So I would agree it is a huge um, incentive for people to send them to us because they know we have a CNC machine and we have a team that's honestly all they do all day long is thread barrels. So it's, <laughs> it's making sure it's done right. And, you know, we've had some barrels that, I mean, some guns that, that have had problems in the mail and we replaced the gun. So, I mean, we stand behind it. So, you know, do we like that UPS backs over it and breaks, you know, one out of a million and we have to buy a whole new gun? No, but we're standing behind it. We're committed to make sure it's done right. You said a hundred dollars shipping's on top of that. I'm assuming. Yeah, so I think I think we charge twenty bucks for shipping. I mean, we have a great rate with FedEx. I think we're paying nine bucks each direction just because of our volume. So it's it's kind of a break even price on the shipping. Yeah. Wow. And the gun cases are cheap. I mean, we're getting them out of China. We're paying three or four bucks for these gun cases. They're you know Walmart zip up gun cases. We're buying them you know five to ten thousand at a time, a whole shipping container. You know, we have a whole warehouse full of these things. Years ago, we used to say, "Hey, if you beat us at the gun show and you bring a rifle, we'll ship it back to you free." Because there's a lot of local um, uh, sort of shipping companies, speedy delivery, and things like that, where you could just regionalize ship it. So, yeah, it's something we've been doing a long time. I mean, honestly, being a pharmacist and and it really focused on the silencer specifically. I was hesitant to bring that on board because it's really outside of my wheelhouse. I'm not a manufacturing guy. I'm not a machining guy. I'm not an engineering guy, but we did a really good job of hiring the right folks, spending the money on the most expensive equipment. And then, you know, if you come to our facility here in Sioux Falls, we actually have a huge window where you can actually watch them thread your barrels. So oh, guys cool. don't like, you know, they don't like being in the fishbowl is what they call it. But I'm like, Hey, if a guy drives, we have people drive from all over or people come to Sturgis and on the way they'll drop their guns off. Or it's funny people, people, you know, they'll say, Hey, I'm coming through there. Can I bring my rifle? Can you do the while wait? And we're like, yeah, just call ahead. And yeah, it's, 
It's yeah, it's something that honestly I'm not sure I thought would catch on as well as it had. What we didn't want is we don't people people to think that you have to get it threaded by us. You know, some manufacturers will say if we don't thread it, we don't warranty it. We don't do that. Um, obviously, we like to be able to help the customer get that threading, and then they get a comfort level. And we'll usually mention, you know, you said you're going through the process with us. You'll probably get an email at some point saying, "Hey, don't you want to get them threaded? So when it gets approved, you have it ready." So we'll probably send you some reminders just to get it threaded, so you aren't thinking about it after the fact. Yeah. Cool. Well, we covered so much on the process, which is great. Um, we didn't spend any time talking about suppressors. <laughs> so <laughs> That's we'll right. That to, means we got a follow-up, right? <laughs> yeah, that we'll have to do a follow-up. Um, I have a Banish 30 coming, and I think it's probably the best answer to this question. One of the listener questions we got was, what is the best suppressor for hunting and multiple, multiple caliber use? Um, and if guys are, again, new, if they go to Silencer Central, you can buy a suppressor from other manufacturers, but the Banish suppressors are essentially your line of suppressors that you guys designed uh, and have manufactured and essentially sell direct. So again, we're roughly out of time, but like teaser, tell us quick, like what is the Banish, especially I think the Banish 30 is a good option for a lot of our audience. And then like, what what's the design intent? What went into that? Uh, why the Banish 30? Yeah. So coming from South Dakota and then our second location is North Dakota, hundred percent of our customers are hunters. 100% of people don't want a lot of weight on the end of the barrel. The Banish 30 is 100% titanium. You always want titanium. People, sometimes people will argue, don't, I've yet to see an example where you don't want it. It just, it holds up really well. It's strong. It can handle the heat. Um, typically it's quiet or it'll change the tone of the blast better. So the Banish 30 is 100% titanium. It's modular, so you can make it shorter. Some guys are like, ah, that silencer looks too long. It's nine inches. Well, if you want it seven inches, you can make it shorter. So I think a seven inches is hearing safe. I think a nine inches is super quiet for hunting. It comes apart to clean. I find a lot of hunters want to get that carbon out. If there's some lead buildup for some unjacketed bullets, they want to clean that out. Banish 30 comes apart to clean where you can, all the baffles in there are exactly the same. So it doesn't matter what order you put them in. If you're worried about too much wear on the first baffle, don't worry. Cause you can switch the baffle out where it's not the first baffle when you put it back together. So I think is the Banish 30 is crazy quiet. Cause it was made for hunters. Think of it as super light, hundred percent titanium, which is what hunters want. And think of it as, you know, coming apart to clean. So you can look in there and make sure that you're not having any problems and you can get the carbon out and keep it super quiet. But to your point on calibers, gosh, if I'm at a show, I tell a guy it'll, it'll work on a 300 Weatherby all the way down to a 17 HMR. So there's a lot of calibers in between there, centerfire, rimfire that you can use the Banish 30 on and be happy. My experience is once you use it, uh, you'll typically want more. So like if you did use it on a rimfire, you'd say, oh, I think I want to get one just for rimfire because it would be smaller. But if you want something that you could use pretty much on most hunting rifles, 300 Weatherby all the way down to a 17 HMR, the Banish 30 is definitely the way to go. Hmm, cool. Well, I'll let you go for today. You got a lot going on. We used our time. But once again, uh, thanks for the time. We'll have to do a follow-up later. We got a lot more not only things I wanted to cover, but a lot more questions from the listeners that came through in advance. So we'll do that. But um, I'm assuming the best place to guys to go learn more is silencercentral.com and yeah, even give you guys yeah. a call on the phone. As you said, you got a bunch of guys who are very experienced. You could help. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. hundred percent. Go to silencercentral.com. Look at the phone number, click it, call it. We got guys out there. That's all they do all day long. So, and like I said, we sell everything. So if you see, if you don't see someone on our website, just call us. We can make it happen. Well, that's a wrap on this one, guys. Once again, there are several links in the show description that can help you out. 
links to Silencer Central, an overview video on the purchasing process for suppressors, my article detailing my experience hunting with suppressors, and then once again, a link where if you want to ask us a question for the show, you can leave us a message and we will include that in a future episode. As always, guys, appreciate you tuning in. You can also reach us by email to podcast at exomountaingear.com. And if you are enjoying the show, it would help us tremendously if you share the show with a friend or leave a rating or review in your podcast app. If you haven't yet, hit that subscribe button. We'll talk to you soon.